0: Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. The very first book and the very first verse of the Bible. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1 all the way down through chapter 2 and verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, "'Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens "'to separate the day from the night, "'and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. "'And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens "'to give light on the earth.' "'And it was so. "'God made the two great lights, "'the greater light to govern the day "'and the lesser light to govern the night. "'He made the stars also. "'God placed them in the expanse of the heavens "'to give light on the earth.' and to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, "'Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas "'and let birds multiply on the earth. "'There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. "'Then God said, "'Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, "'cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth "'after their kind, and it was so. "'God made the beasts of the earth after their kind "'and the cattle after their kind "'and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, "'and God saw that it was good.' and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. God saw all that he had made and behold, It was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all the work which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work which God had created and made. Father, we would say now as we open Genesis 1 together, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is thy health and salvation. God, help us to see in Genesis what we sung in that song. Help us to see the King of creation and help us to see the King who is our health and our salvation the Creator and the Savior, right here in this first chapter of the Bible. Open our eyes that we might see today, and that we might believe and that we might praise the Lord, the Almighty. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you might guess, this is going to be the first message in a series of messages on the book of Genesis. So you might call this message the beginning of beginnings. Because that's what Genesis is all about, isn't it? Beginnings. The the very name of the book means beginnings. If we were to give a contemporary title to the book of Genesis, we might call it the book of beginnings. Or we might call it the birth of planet Earth, if we wanted to be clever. Or maybe we would just call it in the beginning, taking the first three words from the first verse. That's what the ancient Hebrews called it. They simply called it in the beginning. In their language, Bereshit which is translated in those first three English words. The ancient Greeks called it, from which we get our name, Genesis, which means birth, or to give birth. So what we have here is the story of how the universe was born. It's a book about beginnings, and there are more beginnings in Genesis than just the beginnings of the universe. Sometimes we read Genesis 1 we say, well, Genesis is about the beginning of the earth. Yes, but it's about more than that. It's also about the beginning of some other things. Genesis also examines the human family tree all the way back to its roots in Adam and Eve. So it's the beginning of humankind. Genesis traces back to the fountainhead of the polluted river of sin that so pervades our modern world and our individual lives. All the way back, we find the beginning of sin in the world in Genesis. And further, through the family story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Genesis draws up for us the birthline of the Messiah and gives us the blueprints for the beginnings of God's plan of salvation for fallen sinful humanity. So Genesis has a lot of beginnings in it. It tells us about the beginnings of the world, the beginnings of the human race, the beginnings of sin in the world, and the beginnings of God's plan for salvation for sinners. All of these themes that will be so important in the rest of biblical history and the rest of human history right down to this day, find their origins right here in the book of Genesis. And that means this book is a very important book. And that means this study of this book is a very important study for us if we want to understand our God and ourselves and our Bibles and our world you want to know what your Bible is about, you want to know what your God is about, and you want to know what you and your world are about, you'd better understand the book of Genesis. It gives us the beginnings of all of those things. And it also is a book about God. So we mainly think of Genesis as a book about beginnings, but as with every book of the Bible, this book is mainly about God who is working all these beginnings for His own glory and for our good. So you see the opening freeze frame of Genesis is, in the beginning, God. If that were the very first picture in a picture book, you would have nothing else in existence, period, except God. You go back in the world before the beginning, what you find is God. And if you want to find out how the world came into its beginning, the answer again in Genesis is God. And if you want to find out why the universe continues to operate Every day, the earth continues to spin round. every day in an orderly and timely and predictable fashion. The answer, again, is God. The Bible is the Bible because of God. The world is the world because of God. You and I exist because of God. And even if we ponder for a moment how all of this information in the book of Genesis came down to us this very day, the answer, again, is God who preserved it and protected it and gave it to Moses so that he might write it down and pass it on to the people of Israel and to us. So maybe if we were to give the book of Genesis a title, it wouldn't be just in the beginning. It would be in the beginning, God. Because this book is about God, first of all, and it's about beginnings, second of all, all of which flow from God. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, Your understanding of the book of Genesis is vitally important for how you understand everything that's going on around you. This book will help you figure out what your worldview is. Your worldview is simply, as the Word says, how you view your world, how you see your world. And what you believe or don't believe about the book of Genesis will largely determine how you see the world that you live in. What you think about Genesis will largely determine how you answer questions like these. Where did the world come from? Where did I come from? Is there a God out there somewhere? And if so, what are my responsibilities to Him? Is there a purpose for me being on planet Earth? And if so, what is it? Why is the world as tangled up as it is? And is there a solution to it all? Those kinds of questions and the answers that you give them form your worldview. They shape how you see your world and therefore how you live in your world. And the answers to all of those questions begin to be seen and made clear, some of them very clear, in the book of Genesis. And so if you don't understand this book, you cannot understand your world as the Bible says that you ought. So... The book of Genesis is important because it shows us God, it shows us ourselves, and it shows us how we should see our world. We want to think honestly about our world, we better think honestly about Genesis. And furthermore, if we want to persuade our friends that the biblical, God-centered view of the world is the correct view of the world, then we had better understand Genesis and we had better be able to talk intelligently about it to the people around us. That seems far-fetched. Just think through Genesis chapter 1 for a minute. If you don't understand, even Genesis 1, you cannot talk to your friends about the Lord as you ought because right here in Genesis chapter 1, in the very first chapter of the Bible, we may address very clearly and very directly hot-button issues that are very important in our culture today. Issues like evolution, issues like the sanctity of human life, including abortion and euthanasia, Issues, that, uh, issues like the relationship between men and women. Is there a difference between the two genders? All those issues that are so important in our culture and that are shaping our culture, most of the time in the wrong ways, may find solutions, or at least the beginnings of solutions, right here in chapter 1 of Genesis. So what you believe, even about Genesis 1, will go a long way in determining how you answer those questions that are so important to the world that we live in. And so with that in mind, let's go right to Genesis 1 and let's look closely at what it says and in the coming weeks and months we'll go through the entire book and look closely at what it says. But today, just chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2. And what I want to do as we look at chapter 1 is just start by giving you a simple outline for the six days of creation. So. You read this, and it's hard to remember what happened on what day and how it happened and when it happened. So let me give you an outline that will help you remember it. And it's just an outline with two parts. If you can remember these two words, you'll be ahead of the game. The two words are forming and filling. Those are the two things God did in the six days of creation here in Genesis 1. He formed things in the first three days, and then in the second three days, He filled those things that He had formed. So just follow along with me really quickly and look at that. On day 1, verses 3 through 5, God formed the light or the daytime. On day 2, verses 6 through 8, God formed the sky, which is translated as the expanse in my version, maybe the firmament or the heavens in yours. On day 3, verses 9 through 13, God formed the dry land and the vegetation that is on the dry land. On day 4, God began filling the sky and the land and the sea with the things that He filled it with. And those are these. Day 4, He filled the sky with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day 5, He filled the waters with the fish and the sea creatures. And He filled the sky with birds also on day 5. And then on day 6, verses 24 through 31, He filled the land with mammals and with reptiles and with all the beasts of the earth, it says, and He also, on day 6, began to fill the earth with the crown of His creation being humanity. And then we read in chapter 2, verse 2, by the seventh day, God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. So, forming on days 1, 2, and 3, filling what He had formed on days 4, 5, and 6, and then resting on the seventh day. Now, knowing what this teaches, we should find it no surprise that nearly every civilization since the dawn of time has ordered their life around a seven-day week. I find that interesting. All these cultures that never had any contact with the book of Genesis and didn't have much contact with one another all independently decided to form their lives around seven-day weeks. Now, as you know, the months are determined by the moon, and so we can figure out why everybody has months. But why seven-day weeks? Well, I think that God imprinted in the conscience of man this idea that he had done everything in seven days and that we should order our lives in seven days. So the seven-day week that everyone observes is testimony in the human conscience to the fact that Genesis chapter 1 is legitimate, that this stuff really happened now Having made mention of the fact that I think Genesis 1 is completely legitimate, let me just pause here and say a word about evolution, and then we'll say some more things out of this chapter as well. When we think about evolution, the first thing we need to note is that it is a theory. A theory is something that is not yet proven scientific fact. It's something that man has taken and said, perhaps this is how all this evidence that we have shapes out, but they haven't taken the scientific method and been able to prove it yet. That's what a theory is, and the theory of evolution is a theory. Anyone who believes it will honestly tell you, yes, it's a theory, because the distance between now and the beginnings of the world, whenever that was, is too far away for us to empirically test any data, for us to do any scientific experiments and say for sure that evolution is true though it is taught as true and believed as true by many people in our country and in the Western world, is simply a theory without scientific proof. And any theory of the beginning of the world would have to remain a theory because none of them can be tested, much less proven. So let's say this first of all: if you are enamored with the theory of evolution, you think that it might be true. That's fine, and you have your right to that opinion. But let's not get ahead of ourselves and start to claim that the Bible contradicts science. Because science hasn't proven the theory of evolution and it never will. Now let me go one step further with this. Not only can the theory of evolution not be scientifically tested or proven, but it cannot, by any reasonable means, be paired up or partnered with what we read in Genesis 1. And I want to just try to show you that in a few ways. And again, what I'm saying is, Genesis 1 cannot be partnered with the theory of evolution. You cannot lay those things side by side and say that they work together. Now let me show you why. First, I just want you to notice that we are given no reason in this chapter to believe that the six days of creation were not six literal days. No reason at all. Now there are some who would like to go to the New Testament and take 2 Peter 3.8, which says, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. And they say, we can overlay that on Genesis. Maybe these six days were really 6,000 years. And we might reasonably do that, except for the fact that Genesis 1 says again and again and again and again and again six times, there was evening and there was morning, the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. Evening and morning, each day. That doesn't describe the process of a millennium, does it? That describes the process of one 24-hour day. And if the Bible had meant to leave open a loophole for us to think that possibly that this was all a long, drawn-out, 6,000-year evolutionary process, it wouldn't have said there was evening and there was morning one day. God was closing the the loopholes for us. So according to Genesis 1, the universe wasn't created by a long, drawn-out process, but in a hurry, in a six-day hurry. Second, notice this. The Bible makes it clear here in Genesis 1 that the plants and the sea creatures and the birds and the mammals and the reptiles and the beasts of the earth, all of them were created after their kind. If you're taking notes, you can just write down verses 11 and 12, verse 21, and verse 24. That phrase, after their kind, is repeated seven or eight times in this passage. Every time God created an animal, He said, or a plant, He said, after its kind. And the thing that's important about that is the word that's translated kind, K-I-N-D, is a Hebrew root word that means species. So what we very may well read here is God created all the plants after their different species. And God created all the animals and the, the reptiles and the fish and the birds after their different species. God did not create an amoeba that turned into a fish according to Genesis 1. Nor did he create a rat that turned into a possum. Nor did he create a monkey that adapted to its circumstances and became a modern man. He created all the different animals after their kind, after their species. So, to say anything otherwise is to say I don't agree with what Genesis 1 says. And then furthermore, notice this, that man was created in the image of God. That's very clear, isn't it? All that we get about the sanctity of human life has its roots in that very section there in verses Uh, 26 and following. What it doesn't say is that man was created in the image of a monkey or anything else, does it? So for us to say that man came from the apes, we must also be prepared to say that God, in whose image man was made, is something like an ape. Or, at least, that's what he was like back then. Maybe he's evolving too. You see, evolution is at best silliness and it's at worst blasphemy to say that man created in the image of God was an ape. And therefore God was too. Man was made in the image of God distinct from all else in creation. He was at the very beginning given the godlike characteristics of speech and reason and creativity and a moral consciousness. When Adam and Eve sinned, they knew they had sinned, and they knew they were naked. When Adam and Eve came into the earth, they could walk, and they could talk, and they could think, and they could make up names for all the animals. Monkeys don't do those things. No matter how how hard they try to make them, they don't do those things, do they? And neither does anything else in creation. Man is the only creature made in the image of God. And perhaps we can get a little help from a children's rhyme that's in one of the books in the Sunday school room in the back. It says this very simply, A is for Adam, God made him from dust. He wasn't a monkey, he looked just like us. And that's the honest truth of what Genesis 1 teaches. So someone might honestly hold to the theory of evolution. Someone might take the data and say, Yes, I think, instead of what the Bible says, I think the theory of evolution is true. And that, again, is their right. But they cannot, and we cannot, at the same time believe in evolution, also claim to believe in the scriptures. They just won't mesh, at least not honestly and not thoughtfully. There are two completely opposite theories the beginning of the earth and they will never and they can never come together in cooperation with one another. Now, before we go on, I want to do uh, something that is not what I normally do, but I want to just pause and try to anticipate questions that people might ask from Genesis 1 in relation to the theory of evolution. And I realize that the two I'm going to ask aren't the only two that could be asked, but people often read this with the background of evolution that they were taught in school or as children or they've researched themselves, and they have honest questions, and I understand that, and so I want to try to take two of those honest questions and answer them from the pages of the Scripture, and then we'll go on and look at uh, what this chapter says about God and what it says about us. So the first question is this. How can there have been evening and morning before the sun was created? If this account is true, the sun wasn't created until day three, but there was evening and morning on days one and two as well. How can that be? How can you have evening and morning without the sun and without the rotation of the earth? We might further ask this, how could the world even hold in place without the benefit of the sun's gravitational pull? This can't be so, the question goes. The earth can't exist without the benefit of the light and the gravitational pull of the sun. Well, here's the biblical answer for that. Ultimately, it is not the sun that keeps the earth from falling out of the sky, is it? God uses the sun, but ultimately, it is not the sun that keeps us in place. Ultimately, it is the God who created the sun who keeps the earth from falling out of its place. Hebrews 1 3 says it like this He upholds all things by the word of his power. He doesn't uphold all things by Mother Nature, but by the word of His power. So I conclude that if God is powerful enough to create a sun that can provide light for the earth and gravitational pull to make all the planets spin in perfect time, that God is also powerful enough to create light and to hold the earth in place without the benefit of the sun. You can think of it like this. The sun is like the screws in the toolkit of the carpenter. The carpenter uses the screws to make the cabinet stay on the wall, doesn't he? But it's the carpenter who's actually doing the work. And it's the same thing with God and the sun. And the second question is this, also related to the sun and and also the moon and stars as well. If the earth was created in six literal 24-hour days, then how could the sun and the moon and the stars have provided light so quickly? In other words, think that through for a minute. We know, all of us realize, that it takes light from the sun a long, long time to get to the earth, doesn't it? In fact, I believe this is true, if we go with a a young earth that's maybe 6,000 years old, and we say that the sun was created then, and it had to wait for the light beams to get to the earth, they still wouldn't be here. It'd still be dark. And so people say, how can that be? If God made the sun and the sun gave light, that's impossible for that to happen in six days or le- much less on one single day, day three. How can that be? Well, here again I point out the power of God. You believe in God, it's not that tasking of a question. If God is powerful enough to create the sun, then he is powerful enough to create the sun in process So that the moment it first came up over the horizon on planet Earth, its rays, by divine command, were created already spanning the gap between sun and earth. God can make the sun, he can make rays that span the gap. Just like that, can't he? By the word of his power. And that must be what he did. And the same thing could be said of the moon and of the stars as well. Now... Like I said, there are many more questions that could be asked. And if you have one of those questions, like always, I'm available after the service today to meet with people that might be trying to come to terms with these things. And I'll say up front, I don't have all the answers, but I'll be glad to take as much time as I can to try to show you the answers that I think we should be able to see in the Scriptures. So, that's the offer that's on the table, but for now we have to move on. And the way I want to move on, as I mentioned already, was by asking two questions. Number one, what does Genesis 1 teach us about mankind? And number two, what does Genesis 1 teach us about God? I want you to help shape your worldview based on Genesis 1. What does it say about us and what does it say about him? So we'll answer those two questions and make a concluding application and then we'll be done. Okay, so what does Genesis 1 teach about Mankind, And I just want to give you a few bullet points here and expand on some of them more than others. First, Genesis 1 teaches that mankind had a definite beginning. As we said before, i say again, man did not evolve in Genesis 1. He was created at a point in time on day 6. So, number one, Genesis teaches us that man had a definite, definite beginning. Second, Genesis 1 teaches us that mankind is dignified. He is dignified, created in the image of God, verse 27. That means that no one in the world has the right to degrade or to destroy human life. Not someone else's life and not their own. Man is dignified because he was created differently. From the animals. That's what our Declaration of Independence is trying to say when it says that everyone was endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. It means God made us in His image and therefore everyone should be treated with dignity regardless of sex, race, age, health, nationality, or other. Everyone should be treated with dignity. The Declaration of Independence got that from the Bible. And the fact that man is created in God's image right here in this very first chapter reaches into all sorts of areas that are all confused in our culture, doesn't it? It reaches into the areas of social justice. It reaches into the areas of race relations. It reaches into the area of sexual ethics, the area of abortion, the area of euthanasia, all sorts of things that our culture can't figure out. The answer to them is here in Genesis 1. Man is dignified, and he should be treated as dignified. And one of the reasons our culture is so mixed up is because we're unprepared to acknowledge the image of God in one another. Now, thirdly, Genesis 1 teaches us that mankind has dominion over all the earth. So he had a definite beginning, he's dignified, he has dominion over all the earth. Now look at verse 26. Man was to and is to rule over the other created beings. And then verse 28, man is to subdue the earth. First of all, let's say what that doesn't mean. Because man is given the right to rule over and subdue the earth, doesn't mean that man can abuse the earth. It doesn't mean that man can do with the earth whatever he pleases. But it does mean that human beings have a God-given authority over the planet on which we live. Human beings have a God-given authority to chop down trees and to build buildings and to eat meat and to domesticate animals. That's what those verses mean. So, the good of the human race and the good of the individual members of the human race must always take precedence over things like saving the whales. As wonderful as that might be, the human race is priority on the earth. Let me just insert that it's crazy how many babies we abort and how many whales and other things that we save. But that's for another sermon. So, man has the right to rule over the earth. But having said that, let us also note that how we treat our environment is a lot more important than many Christians would like to admit. Subduing the earth means managing it with care and with caution. It is quite frankly, we evangelicals who have been so quick to argue that we're allowed to subdue the earth in doing certain things that we want to do haven't been so quick on the other side to say since we're in charge of the earth, we had better take good care of it. And we ought to be a little more careful with the things that we say. God has given us the earth as a gift. And therefore, anybody who's a Christian worth their salt will care about the environment and will care for the environment. They won't litter They will vote in ways that protect the environment as much as that's necessary and possible. And they will do what they can to take care of their little corner of God's earth. So, man had a definite beginning. Man is dignified. Man has dominion over the earth. Fourth, Genesis 1 begins to show us that mankind is distinct in his gender roles or her gender roles. We're going to think through this more thoroughly when we get to chapter 2 next week. But for now, I just want you to notice this one thing, that God made a very clear distinction right from the beginning. Verse 27, the end of the verse, male and female, He created them. There is a difference. And we'll talk about more, more about what that is next week. But there is a difference in a culture that's confused about that question as well. And finally, we learn from Genesis 1 that mankind has a duty to His Maker. Everyone in this room and everyone in this world is accountable to God. I want you to notice the very first thing God did after He created Adam and Eve in verse 28. The first thing He did was to bless them and then give them a command. And that's significant. It lets us in right away on the fact that this is not a relationship between equals. The relationship between God and man is not a relationship between equals, nor is it a relationship of autonomy. God does His thing, and we do our thing. From the very beginning, man was dependent on God for the blessings of life and sustenance, and he was accountable to God in the areas of service service and obedience. From the very beginning, man was commanded. And at least in chapter 1, man obeyed. That means you and I, whether we realize it or not and whether we like it or not, are under the authority of the living God. We are accountable to Him. We are commanded to do certain things by Him. Before we leave what Genesis 1 says about man, I would just pause and ask you, are you living today as though you were really accountable to your Creator? And if not, why not? And if not, what will you say someday when death comes and God calls you to account? Think about that. And then finally, let's discover what Genesis 1 has to say about this God to whom we're accountable. What does Genesis 1 teach us about God? And again, I'll give you some bullet points. Now remember this is a book about God, and so this is most certainly a chapter about God and the most important thing we can do in any chapter of the Bible is to say what does it say about God? So five things. Number one, God is preexistent, and we'll talk about all these. He's preexistent, He is powerful, He is perfect, He is profound, and He is plural. Five P's. Pre existent, powerful, perfect, profound, plural. And think about each of those briefly. Number one, God is preexistent. We learned that in the very first verse. In the beginning, God Before the world ever was, there was God. One of the most basic truths about God, the most basic truth about God, is that without beginning and without end, God simply is. If you're using the little yellow book of questions and answers with your children, that's one of the first few questions. Did God have a beginning? No, He has always existed. Will God have an end? No, He will always exist such a basic truth. And we know it's a basic truth because God gave himself a name based on that truth in the book of Exodus. And we also know it's a basic truth from just practical life. Because if you have children or you're around children, what's one of the first questions they begin to ask when you teach them about God? Where did God come from? And you need to be able to say, God didn't come from anywhere. God always was, in the beginning, God. So God is pre-existent second, God is, in Genesis 1, powerful. As you read the chapter, you'll notice that in verses 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, and 24, all begin with the same three English words. Then God said. three, six, nine, eleven, fourteen, twenty, and 24. And every time God said... Whatever it was that God said came to be. So, for instance, God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God said, Let the dry land appear, and it was so. God says, and it happens. Now I remember as a kid uh, seeing the movie Batman uh, with Michael Keaton and being amazed at Batman and his Batmobile because he could be anywhere in the world and he could just take the little thing out of his pocket and give a command to his Batmobile and it would do what he said, right? You say, shields. And all of a sudden, the camera would go to the Batmobile and the whole thing would cover up with shields just out of nowhere. Everything was voice activated. And now I'm amazed because I watch the commercials on TV and I find that apparently everyone in creation can have a Batmobile. You have these cars now, they have commercials for them. Sunroof, and the sunroof opens. Burger King, and the little thing on the screen gives you the directions to Burger King, right? It's amazing. Windows, and the windows come down, chair go forward, and everything that you say, pretty soon you'll just be able to tell it where you want to go, and then you'll be able to sit back and have a Coke, and it'll take you there. It's voice activated, and the reason why they do that is not because we need voice activated, it's because it makes us feel powerful. If we can say, hey, you do this, and the machine does it, we're like, ha ha, have you seen my car? It's an Acura, and it's voice activated. And so we buy the car. That's the whole idea of the commercials. But here's the thing. When we read Genesis 1, what we have is God sitting in the driver's seat of the universe and the whole universe is voice activated, tuned in to His voice. He simply says, go and things go. He says, be and things are. He says, stop and things stop. He says, start and things start. God is powerful. And that's what we're meant to see in Genesis 1. Thirdly, we're to see that God is perfect. Everything that God does turns out good. And you can see that repeated again and again and again in verses 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, and 31. All of those verses say whatever it was God just made was good. The light was good, verse 4. The seas were good, verse 10. The plants were good, verse 12. Verse 12 and so on, until you get all the way down to verse 31, and it says God saw all that He made, and behold, it was very good. Everything God does is good. God never, ever makes mistakes. Even when He allows calamities to strike a city and heartaches to come into an individual life, God never makes mistakes. And we learn that here in Genesis 1. And just as an aside, Based on the power of God and the perfection of God that we see in Genesis 1, let us also say there are no such things as accidents. The universe didn't bang into being by accident and nothing that's happening in your life will happen by accident. The God who is big enough to create the world in six days has everything perfectly under His control. Fourth, God is profound or glorious. This is perhaps the most obvious characteristic of God that we can see here in Genesis 1. God is profound. God is glorious. Every good thing that God has created has been created out of an overflow of God's creativity and God's beauty. Everything that you see in the world created by the Lord is a reflection to you of the beauty of God. Now be careful. Everything that you see is not God, but everything that you see created by God is to reflect His beauty. And his glory. Have you ever watched one of those nature shows where they show you, uh, all in about the span of five seconds, a flower first peeking its little head out of the ground and then beginning to sprout up and then beginning to bloom into a full flower, all just really in a hurry. They speed the camera up. Have you seen that? If you can imagine that picture in your mind, that's always been amazing to me. If you can imagine that picture in your mind and then multiply that times the whole universe. For six days, that's what was going on. Things were sprouting up in fast motion everywhere you could see. Beautiful things. Magnolias. We Love those where I'm from. Tulips were springing up. Snapdragons were just coming up out of the ground. Cows and giraffes and frogs and ponds and rivers and mountains. Sea monsters, he says. For those of you who like the Loch Ness Monster, you can picture that just whoosh, springing up out of nowhere. All of these things out of nowhere, in a hurry, springing to life and to beauty. Isn't that an amazing picture? I wish that we could see more of those nature shows that would help us, but think of it. God splashes flowers all over the mountainsides. God paints the sky blue and then red and then orange and then purple. God makes the waters teem like a pot of hot coffee, just filled with new life, sea creatures and fish and all the other things in the ocean. God fashions little babies in the womb after His own image. All these things that God has created are all demonstrations of His creativity and His beauty. Everywhere you look, you should see the heavens declaring the glory of God. When we look at the beautiful things God has made, the goal is for us to think to ourselves, if the creation is that amazing, what must the Creator be like? That's the point of chapter 1. If the creation is that amazing, what must the Creator be like? Finally, God is plural. Everywhere we turn now, let me pause here, everywhere we turn in the Bible, the Bible teaches us that there is only one true God. And I affirm that, I uphold that, as does every biblical Christian who has ever lived. There's only one true God. But the Bible also teaches us that the one true God is plural. He is plural. And that's not just in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament as well. And it's not just in the Old Testament. It's in the very first book of the Old Testament in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Old Testament. You can see it clearly in verse 26, can't you? Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Three times God refers to Himself as plural. So throughout the Bible, God has revealed himself both as one and as plural. Somebody says, how in the world can that be? Well, I don't know. But that's what the Bible teaches. And so that's what I'm going to teach, because that's what's true. When you turn to the New Testament, this begins to come to a little bit better light. You get a little bit better of idea of what it means for God to be plural when you read the New Testament, because the New Testament makes it crystal clear that the one true God exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. ...are one God. All three of those persons are distinct. All three of those persons exist at the same time And they're all God at the same time. Again, that doesn't make sense to the human reason, but that's the truth of the scriptures. And specifically, the New Testament says about Jesus, Colossians 2, 9, In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, everything that God is was in Jesus, inside of that body. and still is, because he still lives in that body. The New Testament also says of Jesus these words, back in Colossians 1, 16, All things have been created through Him and for Him. And so what we're really reading is that God is plural. He's revealed Himself in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when we read about God, here we're reading about Jesus, whom we see more clearly in the New Testament. All the way back in Genesis 1, we can find Jesus. So let me close then with this bit of application. The God to whom you and I are accountable is none other than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. It is Jesus who upholds all things by the word of His power, Hebrews 1. It is He who is preexistent and powerful and profound and perfect. We owe Jesus our very lives. And this amazing account of creation ought to motivate us all the more to love Him with all of our hearts and to obey Him with all of our might. When you read Genesis 1, you ought to think, I am accountable to Jesus. If we're honest with ourselves, all of us will admit that. You know what else? If we're honest with ourselves, all of us will admit that none of us lives before Jesus as we ought, do we? There's not one of us in this room who honors Jesus, our Creator, as we should. There's not one of us in this room who even obeys our own conscience as we should. We know what's right and wrong, and we still choose wrong much of the time. So all of us would say, yes, we're accountable to God, we're accountable to His Son, Jesus, and we would also say, yes, we stand guilty before a perfect God of holiness. If that's true, then it should lead us to this conclusion, let us thank God that the Christ of creation is also the Christ of the cross. Let's thank God that the sovereign to whom we are accountable in Genesis 1 is also the Savior who paid the penalty for our sins and our lack of accountability. So let me ask you in closing, are you trusting in holding yourself accountable to the Christ of the cross. And if you are not, what will you do when you stand before the perfect, powerful, profound, pre-existent Christ of creation? Lord, Genesis 1 doesn't give us any commands except to subdue the earth, but it certainly presents us with you and with your son Jesus And that always presents us with a challenge because we know that we haven't submitted to you as we ought. We haven't loved you as we ought. We haven't trusted you as we ought. And we need a Savior. So we thank you that the Jesus who created all things, the Jesus who upholds all things by the word of His power, is also the Jesus who went to the cross and paid the penalty for sinners who do not obey as they should. So we thank You for Him and pray that You will help us trust and love and obey Him more after Genesis 1 than we did before it. And we pray it in His name. Amen.